we don't have infinite amount of time tonight, but I thought what we would do tonight since the entire uh, last few classes that you've had together with the other Rebbeim in the yeshiva have been about business ethics. I think this is the third maybe in the series. Um, we're not speaking specifically about business ethics, but I thought that we would talk a little bit about uh, a very important book, a very important uh, thinker, and try to find the antecedents uh, and the precedence to this idea in uh, in Jewish thought. Um, I'm speaking specifically, although the, the poster had a, I think maybe the first edition, the first uh, run of the, of the book. There's an excellent book. I have it here. Let's see if I can get rid of this blur. I have too much blur here. There we go. Uh, an excellent book by the psychologist and uh, social critic, Eric Fromm, who of course was, uh, was Jewish. And Eric Fromm, was a psychologist who worked a lot on the uh, worked a lot on the importance of human relationships. And I want to. The truth is, if we if if we could have, if we would have, I I would have prepared a whole uh, sheet that we could sort of read this together. So it'll have to be slightly more me reading than us reading together off of a source sheet. But I think it's going to be okay. That. The basic uh, foundation of Eric Fromm's book, To Have or To Be, which is one of his classic books, he has a, a number of really excellent offerings. Um, he has a, a book called the Art, of, the Art of Loving, which is excellent, which is very much related to this. And he has several other uh, books as well. The book, To Have or To Be, uh, really sets forth two different visions for how a person can live in the world. There are what he describes as having modes of being, and being modes of, of living. These are two different ways that a person operates in the world. And um, he starts off the book quite curiously by contrasting the West and the East. Uh, specifically in his example, he quotes, a, he has two, and I'm, I'm going to read them both for you in a moment, but he, he, he has here two poems back to back. Um, one of them by the famous... Uh, um, the famous poet, uh, the English poet, Tennyson, and the other one from a Japanese poet by the name of Basho. And for him, the English poet, Tennyson, and Basho represent two different modes of operating in the world. And um, and we're going to jump in. They're both very short poems. We're going to jump into both of them. Now, obviously, uh, neither of them is correct. They're both They're both models for living in the world. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be the first to point out that Israel is situated in the Middle East, which means we're neither East nor West, but we're supposed to be some sort of uh, mixture of the two of them. And the book is called To Have or To Be, which is actually, as the book goes on to explain, is actually a false binary. It's not to have or to be. It's really, it should be uh, aptly called to have and to be, right? Because nobody wants to just be and nobody wants to just have. Um, or at least as he's going to put forth as his argument, we're not we're not looking to just be and not have anything. I mean, everybody, you know, is sitting in their in their homes right now, and we are on our computers, and we have plenty of things, uh, and 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 we want to both have and be. So let, let's jump into the two poems, and we'll contrast them, and I think we'll immediately see the difference between these two modes of being, and then we'll go back and we'll try to plug these back into the Torah and see some sources that might indicate that the Torah's perspective is to both have and be at the same time. So the, the, 
the poem from uh, from Tennyson goes like this: "Flower in a crannied wall, I pluck you out of the crannies, hold you here, root and all, in my hand, little flower." But if I could understand what you are, root and all, and all in all, I should know what God and man is. That's the poem. I'll read it one more time. That's the whole thing. Flower in a crannied wall, I pluck you out of the crannies, hold you here, root and all. In my hand, little flower, but if I could understand what you are, root and all, and all in all, I should know what God and man is. That's the poem by Tennyson. Now, again, if you're, uh, you know, if you're a sensitive person, you see that uh, it's a deeply religious poem. I would know what God and man are. He's appreciating. He's he's stopping to not only smell the roses but pluck them, and uh, to appreciate them. If I could understand them, he's trying to understand the flower. Compare that with an English translation, obviously, of a haiku from a Japanese poet, all the way deep in the east, and here. The haiku goes like this. When I look carefully, I see the nazuna, which is a type of flower, I see the nazuna blooming by the hedge. First of all, not a great poem, if you ask me, but um, a haiku nonetheless from this Japanese poet, Basho. And I'll read it one more time. When I look carefully, I see the nazuna blooming by the hedge. There's That's what it is. All right. So... One of them, uh, namely the fellow from England, sees the flower in the crannied wall and feels the need, as a Westerner would, I see the hand, I'll, I'll grab it in a second, sees the, uh, sees the hand and feels the great need to pluck it out of the cranny. I hold you, root and all, in my hand, little flower. But if I could understand what you are, root and all, and all in all, I should know what God and man is. As opposed to the... Japanese fellow is content when I look carefully, I see the Nanzuna blooming by the hedge. Now, the truth is, the more you think about this Japanese poem, uh, the more profound it sort of is. When I look carefully, I see the Nanzuna blooming by the hedge. When I don't look carefully, I don't see it because I run through the day and I pass by probably a thousand. I don't, I don't pass any Nanzunas, I don't think. But I pass by a thousand flowers and I don't recognize them unless I'm looking carefully. And so for him, it's about looking carefully and then he sees the blooming flower by the hedge. The difference between the two of these, as uh, as Eric Fromm puts it, is the difference is striking. Tennyson reacts to the flower by wanting to have it. He needs to have the flower. He plucks it, root and all, while he ends with an intellectual he ends with an intellectual speculation about the flower's possible function for attaining insight into the nature of God and man. The flower itself is killed as a result of his interest in it. Tennyson, as we see him in this poem, is the Western scientist who seeks the truth by means of dismembering life. You know, think about taking the frog apart, you know, in order to understand the different parts of it in some way. Whereas Basho's reaction to the flower is entirely different. He doesn't want to pluck it. He doesn't even want to touch it. He, what he does is look carefully to see it and to be one with it. Right, So what his idea of looking at the flower is he wants to be in the experience of the flower. He doesn't want to own the flower. He doesn't want to have the flower. He wants to be with the flower. He wants to see the flower and have the experience of looking carefully at it. Um, Mr. Waldman, I see your, I see your hand. 
Yes, just a, a, a quick question or something I noted. I'm sure Tennyson was very precise with language and grammar. And yes. the final line is, I should know what God and man is. But it really should be proper grammar would be, I should know what God and man are. And I just was wanted to point out that maybe there's some significance to Tennyson. What do you think the significance? I mean, I have I have immediate I have immediate significance there, but I did not notice but, it before, and I thank you for that. But what, what do you almost as tying God and man as a singularity? So that um, that's I was just uh, just very, to point very out. very I'd excellent. Your your uh, yes, I I was going to say as well. I should know what God and man is. Uh, speaks to the idea that there is some shared experience here between God and man, and so. Ultimately, perhaps we could push back a little on Fromm and say there's a there's a little bit more of an experience happening there. The is right is is a being mode, and um, if I could understand what you are, root and all, and all in all, I should know what God and man is, right? I, I would understand. Well, I guess this is a, a good place to to sort of uh, leap into some Torah sources. I want to come back to Fromm because I don't want to just use him as a cheap trick, you know, as a cheap party trick. That uh, you know, I if if you, I mean, I'll I'll see if I don't know if you could see the lighting is not amazing, but throughout the whole book, I have like little notes, um, to uh, to myself here, and some of them are pretty pretty humorous. Some of them are, you know, there's oh look in Lakute Maharan, Rabbi Nachman has a piece that's like this, or oh look in the Meshachachma, you know, oh look over here, there's, you know, there's there's quite a few notes here. I don't know that I. It, it could be that I wouldn't take this book into the bathroom anymore. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's all it's all noted up with with all types of Torah thoughts and, and it's annotated throughout the whole thing. But I do want to come back to him because he has an excellent um, there's one other paragraph here, which I think is really worth reading and we'll read it in a second. But I want to. I think it's instructive to read. The, the truth is from does do quite a bit of. Um, he does quite a bit of work with the Bible, actually with both Bibles. He uses both Bibles. We're only, we're only going to look at one because that's, uh, you know, this is a Torah class. But he he does quite a bit of uh, of drawing from from the Torah and uh, finds it interesting that Cain and Hevel are, are Cain is, is, comes from a language of Kenyan, of acquiring, which is the having mode of being. And Hevel is more the mode of seeing the world as a fleeting uh as a fleeting thing, and therefore all we have is our experiences. But I want to, I want to go maybe from a slightly different angle and to talk about this. Now, some will. Uh, I see that we're we're joined here by my wonderful parents, um, and uh, and they definitely have heard me speak about this before. And some of you may have heard me speak about this in other settings as well in a right this context. But I'm a one issue voter at uh, at this point in my life, and uh, and I feel like there's a there's a unique. There's a unique uh, offering that I have to bring to the world, so I'm going to speak about it as much as I can, and that is uh, the topic of my first my first book, which is uh, about tefillah. And I want to share a a small section of the book that I haven't really had so much time to speak about, and I, I would like to speak about it in depth. And I think that because of my reading Eric Fromm, especially this book to have and to be, but other works of his as well. I've I've been able to draw some of his language out and to see how that really manifests itself in one of the most important, one of the central pieces of the opening storyline of Hashem putting Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden. And it has profound, profound implications for how we live our lives. To, to give a brief 
summary of something that I've spoken about before, both in the settings in Araita and in, in many other times, I suppose, on the world stage in different contexts, at different podcasts and different things like that. Um, Hashem created the world in a way which is quite startling, and that is Hashem created the world with speech instead of with his hands. And what that indicates to us as people who are reading the Torah is that Hashem did not simply give us the world. That would mean uh, the world that we inhabit with all of our five senses and the way that we interact with the world in order to simply have the world. If Hashem would have created the world with his hands and gave it to us, then he would be inviting us with our hands to then take the world and that would be the having mode of existence. Whereas it's clear from the fact that Hashem, as described in the Torah, creates the world with his mouth, then it's clear that Hashem doesn't want us to simply take the world, but he's offering us a relationship with him. And that is more the being mode of existence. That somehow the Torah puts a precedence on the fact that Hashem creates the world with speech, as if to say, let us be in a conversation. As opposed to having stuff, let us be in a conversation. And my creation of the world through speech, right? That the, the subatomic particles of the world is not electrons. And I mean, it's also that. But it's also the subatomic particles of the world are the letters of the Aleph Beis and Hashem speaks the world into being. That would mean that Hashem wants us to be in a relationship with Him. So I don't want to talk about that. I've actually spoken about that a number of times. And if someone's more interested in, in sort of the mechanics of that, uh, I could point you in a few directions to, to read or to, to, to listen to some shirim that I've given about that. I would like to go to another part of the origin of the creation of the world and the story of putting Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden and to speak about um, something which Chazal, our sages, read between the lines in the in chapter 2 of Bereshis in the creation of man. And that's the following. The Torah tells us that when Hashem creates Adam, and at this point, Adam is not yet Adam and Chava. He is uh, he is alone, alone, and it's Lotovdos Adam Levado. It's not good for man to be alone, but at this point, he's alone. And when Hashem first creates man, something very fascinating is uh, described right prior to his creation. And that is that Hashem describes that the earth, and remember, this is day six. Man is created on the sixth day of creation. The earth is barren. There are no uh, plants and vegetables. There's no trees. And that's how the Torah describes it. It's teren yitzmach siach hasadeh. It is before any of the uh, vegetation of the of the earth has given forth its fruit. And the Torah continues to say that it's because there is no matar al ha'aretz, al adama. There is not yet any rain on the earth because there is no human being to work the earth. And Rashi from our sages fills in the details of this rather peculiar preamble to the creation of man that right before man is created uh, we're told there is no vegetation because there's no rain and because there's no human being and Rashi puts all that together and he says what that means apparently is that if there is no man then man has not prayed and if man has not prayed there's no rain and if there's no rain then obviously there can be no vegetation and the explanation of that must be therefore that if man, human beings do not pray for rain there will not be vegetation. There will be not. There will be no food in this garden, and man and women, humanity, will starve. In other words, the creation of man from the very beginning, right before he's about to be created, we're told there is no vegetation, and his only hope, man's only hope of being able to extract some nourishment from the ground, is that 
when humanity is created, we are to look at the ground, recognize the utter lack that pervades existence, to turn vulnerably towards the heavens, and to ask Hashem to make it rain, so that the rain will cause the crops to grow, and we will not go hungry, we will not be starving. And so, so the Torah outlines what man is supposed to do, what humanity is supposed to do at the very uh, onset of creation. Now, what is so surprising about that is that moments later, man, humanity is indeed created. Uh, man is created. And as soon as man is created, something almost hilarious happens. If you have a sense of humor and you're reading the Torah, then I invite again, I invite you to look at this inside in chapter two of, of Genesis of Bereshus, something hilarious happens. And after being given this whole uh, talk, this whole uh, pep talk about how if we don't pray, and there will be no rain, and if there's no rain, there'll be no vegetation, we'll starve. Well, man is created, and but a few psukim later, two psukim later, there is a nahar, there's a river, that is yotze me'eden, there is a river, a mysterious river, that emanates from Eden, lahashkos esagan, to come and to water the garden of Eden. So there is the, there is the garden of Eden, and then there is this mysterious place uh, out yonder that's called Eden, and a river mysteriously comes from this place called Eden and comes and waters the garden. Now, this is hilarious if you read this with a little bit of a sense of humor because it's almost like um, Hashem comes to the, the pre-formation of Adam and says, listen, human beings, if you don't pray, no rain, no rain, no food, no food, you're not going to survive for very long. And as soon as he creates man, Hashem says, oh, just kidding. Here's a river that's going to take care of everything for you. That's going to water the garden and bring everything to life in this remarkable way. In fact, this Ravavadya Svarno, Ravavadya Misvarno, the Italian uh, Rishon on Chumash, on this Pasuk about the river coming out of Gan Eden and watering the garden, writes that the river comes and waters the garden, believe Tircha Shalmitra, without any of the burden of rain. In other words, Hashem, this river is one big just kidding, says Hashem. I told you that you're only going to have food if you have prayer. Actually, there's a river right here, and that river is perfectly capable of watering the garden and bringing it to life and making everything blossom. And well, there it is. So this is a big problem. So what do we do about this? I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a relief, and there's a sense of uh, you know there's a sense of humor that the, the Torah has that Hashem's you know shotgun wedding turns into actually a, a, a one big just kidding. You can walk away from from me. You don't have to pray. You're welcome to to get your sustenance elsewise. But what exactly is being offered here? And so what I would suggest, which is not suggested by any of the Rishonim, but I would suggest that a careful read of the Psukim is of course. If God creates the world with speech and then creates a human being that can speak back, it wouldn't be a very meaningful relationship if we were forced into the relationship at gunpoint. If we were forced into the relationship by saying, if you don't pray, there's not going to be any rain and that's it. So Hashem gives us the option to live along two possible coordinates. We can live in one sense in a world which is dependent on uh just simply taking from the river. I would argue, without having uh, seen Eric Fromm say this explicitly, that that would be the having mode of existence, that it's possible to experience and to 
elicit from the world all the physical things that we could possibly need in the having mode of being, which is where we simply take from the river, or one can live in the more vulnerable state of existence where they cannot take something with their hands at all. Rain is not something that a person can take with their hands, but rather they must they must uh, ask for rain. They must be in a relationship with the divine in order to merit rain. Now, it's not an accident. Of course, the Torah is making a rather strong polemic here because if we think, where do we... Where could we think of two uh, geographical locations that the Torah seems to harp on quite a bit, one of which has a gigantic river at its center, and the other, which is completely dependent on rain? I'll, I'll pause for anybody who wants to weigh in. I think you'll be able to get it. I'm confident in this crowd. Oh, hold the on. Nile and the Euphrates. We have the, we have the Nile. On the one hand, and we have the Euphrates on the other. Why are you saying the Euphrates? I agree with you, but why are you saying the Euphrates? Because it's the biggest of the rivers in Babylonia. Okay, but so oh, so these you're saying these are two examples of of um, of rivers. Yes. What about rain? Does rain remind us of anything? I saw Mr. Epstein trying to weigh in, but he he was on mute, so I didn't get to hear. Where does rain feature very strongly in the Torah? In the flood. In the flood, that's true. It does feature in a chaotic way in the flood. But it also features very strongly in, well, I would say like this. I would say that rain seems to be at the center of the entire system of, I'll use a fancy word here, the entire system of recompense. In the Torah, recompense is, reward, is the fancy word for reward and punishment, right? The entire system of reward and punishment in the Torah is, we say it in Shema uh, every day, that if you keep the mitzvos, then matar bi'ito, there'll be rain in its proper time. My bar mitzvah parsha, because uh, uh, we were nice and we wanted to give the, the to'afs, uh, my, uh, someone in my class, you know, we had the same bar mitzvah parsha and parsha's bahar, so he pushed me off to bichukosai, which I was more than happy to do because I only had like 25 psukim in my whole uh Parsha, because I didn't have to lay in the Tochacha. But in Parsha's Bechukosai, the Im Bechukosai Teilechu Ves Mitzvosai Teshmeru Vasisim Osam, if you keep the mitzvos, then there'll be Gishmechem Bi'itam, there'll be rain in its proper time. Rain is the ultimate reward. And in fact, the Torah tells us that Eretz Yisrael, that's what I was looking for, Eretz Yisrael is a land which uh, runs on rain. And that's why I thought uh, that when Len chimed in with the Nile and the Euphrates, it's actually a very profound idea. Um, the Torah gives us two rivers that are central rivers in the Torah. One of them is the Nile, which actually in uh, in modern topography, the way that the Nile is split up, there are multiple, there's multiple Niles. There's a blue Nile and a white Nile. There's different parts of the Nile. But the Nile River writ large is obviously the, the river which is so famously associated with Egypt. And the Euphrates River uh, which you may have heard at a protest or two, uh, someone talking about the a certain river and a certain sea. So the river that they're referring to is not only the Jordan River, but there's also the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River plays very prominently in the um, in the demarcations of where Eretz Yisrael, it goes from the Nar HaGadol, which is Nahar Pras, which is Pras is from the word Euphrates. And that's one of the rivers which is associated with the land of Israel. Now, 
I invite everybody to fact check me on this, but it's very fascinating that the Nile River, as well as several other major rivers in the region that I live in, in the Middle East, most of the rivers in the Middle East come from underground springs. That's where they, that's where they, uh, the, the water derives from. Now, of course, all, rov- all water comes, you know, at some point or another, comes from precipitation, it comes from the from the oceans, and then it goes down. But but the underground springs are what provide the Nile River um, and several other major rivers in the Middle East with their water. What's fascinating is that the Euphrates River, which is what I thought uh, Len was alluding to, the Euphrates River, remarkably, is something like, you can check the exact number, but it's not less than 80%. It's more than 80%. I don't remember the exact number. It's something like 86 or 87% runoff rainwater. That's what it's from. It's rainwater that comes from the mountains that descends from there. And 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 uh, the Euphrates is almost entirely rainwater. There is some spring water, but it's almost entirely rainwater. In other words, the Euphrates is basically rain masquerading as a river. And so what the Torah is actually making this this wild uh, polemic at the very beginning when it offers Adam Arishon two options for how he wants to live his life. There's one way where he can get his sustenance from a river, which means he can simply go and take what he wants. And there's another way, which is rain. And what I think, whether it was on purpose or not, what Len was alluding to is that there is no, especially in a post-agricultural society, you know, we don't really rely on rain in the same way as we did before. And I don't think anybody gets their sustenance. I don't I don't think anyone has like an account with with some river. We, we tend to get our money from bank accounts and we tend to have our money in stocks and these types of things. We don't necessarily use rain and rivers as markers of agricultural or financial success. But the paradigm of rain and river, and I think that that's what the Euphrates teaches us. The Euphrates is basically a river that emanates from from a place of rain. And what that teaches me, at least, is that there are two ways of looking at everything that we have. And that's from the desk that I'm sitting at to the car that I drive, to the clothing that I wear on my back, to the relationships that I have with people. Because it's very easy to turn relationships as well. We have have relationships um, that are also in the having mode. And that's why I want to return back to Eric Fromm here in, in, in just one moment, where he's going to express this so so profoundly that so many times we have we instead of being in a relationship we have a relationship and oftentimes when there's something that I do in fact own there's an object that I own it's possible to be in a relationship with a thing it's not mutually exclusive it doesn't mean being a vagabond or not having a home or not having possessions it's a posture towards life the difference between being in a vulnerable relationship is what's referred to by another, famous philosopher as an I-thou relationship with even things and certainly with people versus being in a relationship where I am the only subject in the in the story and everything else is an object that I sort of move around and they're the pawns in, in my life. And so I want to read a, a, one more passage from Eric Fromm and then I want to go back to the story of Adam in, in, in Gan Eden and I want to draw out something which I think is uh, is really, for me, it was it was very paradigm shifting in terms of the way that we look at our possessions and we look at our relationships. First, I want to read this passage from Eric Fromm in terms of the temporary, the contemporary usage of the words having and being in our in the English language. He writes, he writes like this. Here is a typical 
if slightly exaggerated example of today's language. This is an amazing paragraph. Here is a typical, if slightly exaggerated example of today's language, the way that people speak nowadays. And this is like, uh, if it was, you know, if, if it was bad in the 60s and 70s when he was writing this, then uh, all the more so nowadays. I don't know if anybody noticed or anyone saw, but uh, a few days ago in the news, there was, uh, there was some news about the first patient having Neuralink installed in their brain, um, which is both a, a feat of remarkable ingenuity and technological advancement. The hope is that it'll allow people who are, uh, who are suffering from paralysis, that they'll be able to move things almost with telepathy using uh, something with their mind to be able to move just like you can move a mouse on a screen without actually moving it on the screen. You're moving it down here and it moves the mouse on the screen that people will be able to communicate and 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 uh, in remarkable ways be able to interact with the world, which that will be a great boon to society. Maybe the flip side of that is what happened today, where there were pictures all over um, social media and other uh, outlets and in the newspapers of people walking around with headsets of um, Apple just came out with this, uh, this virtual reality uh, terrifying next step towards people being more isolated and being in their own echo chambers even more than they were before, which is the flip side of that. Now, a person can have that thing for, I think, some something around three, $4,000. That's how you buy that headset. It's a, quite a pricey piece of technology. Um, but the hope is that even in that technology, there's the possibility that people who are shut in, in, their, you know, in a state of paralysis, will then be able to be in relationships they weren't able to be in before because of this technology. On the other hand, you can have this piece of technology and it can shut you in much more deeper and be not, you know, not be in the world and not be with other people. Um, and that's really part of it. So let's read this amazing paragraph. I think this is like super, uh, this is in the news right now. Assuming that, assume that a person seeking a psychoanalyst's help opens the conversation with the following sentence. Here's the contemporary usage. A person goes to a psychologist, to a psychoanalyst, and they say the following, doctor, and we'll, we'll count the number of haves, doctor, I have a problem. I have insomnia. Although I have a beautiful house, I have nice children, and I have a happy marriage, I have many worries. That is a typical way of speaking nowadays, now even if slightly exaggerated, as Fromm pointed out. Some decades ago, several decades ago, a person might have said it a little bit differently. They might have said, instead of saying, I have a problem, the patient yeah. probably would have said, I am troubled. I am troubled. Not I have a problem, but I am troubled. Instead of saying, I have insom insomnia, they might say, I cannot sleep. I'll mute that. Okay, I think I just took care of that. Um, a person might have said, instead of saying, I have insomnia, they might say, I, I cannot sleep. It's a state of not being able to sleep. Instead of saying, I have a happy marriage, I am happily married. And lest we think that he's just being trivial and trite, um, more recent speech style indicates a prevailing high degree of alienation. By saying I have a problem instead of saying I am troubled, subjective experience is eliminated, right? I have a problem is probably not true. Instead, instead Fromm actually uh, goes on to say that the problem probably has you, right? You don't have a problem. The problem probably has you in the sense that it has taken ownership of you and you are being... Uh, owned by the problem. If a person says, I am troubled, well, then maybe there's something we can do about that. It's not something, 
that I'm trying to pretend like I have ownership of. In fact, in, in fact, it's probably just the opposite. I am in trouble, right? I am in a relationship. And so this is basically what he lays out as uh, a language issue, which, and again, I this is not a book club, but I, I certainly invite everybody to read the book. It's a fascinating book. And he really does give quite a few exercises for how to sort of work on shifting this worldview. But I would argue that going all the way back to the beginning of creation, what Adam and Chava are being offered at the very beginning in Hashem saying, well, there's two options here. You could either be on the rain track or you could be in the river's track. Now, the river's track is quite considerably easier. You don't have to worry that one day or two days or 10 years, it won't rain and you'll be stuck in a famine. But you can simply just go as the Torah describes the Nile River with your foot and to kick the water of the guard of the of the Nile River and to water your garden without need for asking. You can simply put on your virtual reality goggles and enter into a state of pleasure without needing to speak to another person. Or alternatively, you can be in that very sometimes vulnerable, difficult uh relationship where you're trying to work something out, you're trying to actually articulate your feelings and you have to tiptoe around maybe stepping on the other person's feelings and negotiate some sort of relationship. Those two are polar opposites and Adam is being offered both of them. And even though, even though the rain route seems to be maybe slightly less, uh, shall we say, um, obvious or inviting because after all, maybe maybe you'll say no, right? Or in the realm of relationships, maybe my significant other or my hopeful significant other, because there are going to be some alumni who are listening to this soon, but you know, maybe maybe they're going to say no when I ask, hey, do you want to go out tonight and, and spend some time there? It's like, no, I don't really want to. And that hurts a lot. So it's much easier to just be in a relationship where it's not a real relationship, where I simply just take the things that I need and that is uh, definitely easier on my ego, definitely easier on the emotions, but it's ultimately much less rewarding than if the person says no, then I might have to say back to them, well, why no? Is it because of something I did that you don't want to spend time with me? Maybe I haven't been, maybe I haven't been doing other things that would sort of be prerequisites to us being able to spend time together. And so the relationship becomes much more at the center as opposed to what I can get, um, the having mode of being. Now, I want to plug this back in and, and share maybe like the next, a next level of, of profundity. I want to see if I can pull up a whiteboard. Let's see. New whiteboard. Can everybody see that? Can everyone see that whiteboard? Amazing. Yeah, I can see it. That's great. So I'm going to try to do this here. So, um, well, I don't know how many of you got on here because this is just an alumni thing or how many of you are familiar with me, but I have the distinction in the yeshiva. Um, it's not one that I've asked for, but I have the distinction in the yeshiva of being known as uh, one of the rebbeim who who is not afraid, I guess, at the very least, of uh, of kabbalistic literature. I have some training from uh, from university. I have some training from my father. I have some training from my teachers, and uh, it's part of the Torah. And so I, I'm not afraid of. Uh, of, of Kabbalistic literature. And perhaps if I would to say it in a way um, without being uh, braggadocious, what I would say is that 
I have a knack for being able to translate it into a language which is more psych, psych, psychoanalytical, uh, you know, in a way which is easier to wrap your head around than being some esoteric idea. So I'd like to share with you something that you can find in, uh, in the standard text of a book, which is one of the early books of Kabbalah, that's called the Sefer Yitzira. And in the Sefer Yitzira, I'm going to type here for a moment. In the Sefer Yitzira, there are two words which get um, a little bit of airtime. One of which is associated with the ultimate goal of reality. And the other, which is obviously something which we're not really interested in. Oops, I am not doing a good job here. Hold on a second. There we go. Let's pull this out a little better. My first time using this thing. So um, let's let's let it sit like that for now. Let's see if that works. Nope, not working. Okay, we'll 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 leave it like that. So the Sefer Yitzhak says that really all of reality, uh, we have a choice of having reality uh, be something which is the ultimate expression of pleasure in the world, which is called oneg. Oneg means pleasure, of course, like oneg Shabbat, right? The pleasure of uh, of a Shabbos meal, and then of course we have the opposite end of the spectrum. We have the pleasure of reality. And then there is also, as everybody is aware, there are sometimes the displeasures of reality, which the which the Savior here refers to as nega. Nega, which would mean plague or affliction in some in some way. And these two are the opposite spectrums of the pleasure-pain uh spectrum. So the exact the exact language of the Savior Yitzira is. There is nothing greater in the world than Oneg, and there is nothing worse than Nega. There is nothing worse than affliction. Now, you'll notice right away, and the Sefer Yitzhira is definitely doing this on purpose, you'll notice right away that, of course, the word Oneg and the word Nega are made up of, comprised of the same letters. Ayin, Nun, Gimel, Nun, Gimel, Ayin. This oh. is the same, these are the same letters, but are in obviously a little bit of a different a little bit of a different order. And that is not by accident. This is going back to what we mentioned before, that the um, the world was created with letters of the Aleph Bays. And the way that we manipulate reality, at least from the Kabbalistic perspective, is through Torah and Tefillah, through our words of Torah and our words of Tefillah. That causes reality to be moved around. And maybe you've heard at some point of the folk story of the young boy who is in shul on Yom Kippur, and he says, I don't know how to daven, but I'll just say the letters of the Aleph, the letters of the Aleph Bays, and God, you take the letters and you rearrange them and make them say something good because I don't know how to pray. And this is seen as like a, uh, you know, a novel way of, of praying, of relating to the world uh, of, of this uh, mode of prayer. So now we have Oneg and we have Nega. Now I just want to say one last thing. It is remarkable that Nega is associated in the Torah. You might be familiar, just in Pshat, in Chumash. Nega is associated at least twice that I'm familiar with, with Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim, which is the land of the rivers. And Oneg, this uh, pleasure, uh, is not explicitly in the Torah, is not explicitly associated with Eretz Yisrael. But if we see Nega as being associated with Mitzrayim and Oneg as being associated with Eretz Yisrael, we might be able to pull something out of here, which is which is rather profound. The two places we find the word nega associated with Mitzrayim are number one, 
when when Avraham and Sarah go down to Mitzrayim in a famine, uh, and Sarah is abducted by Avimelech by Paro uh, at the time. So the Torah tells us that Hashem brings a nega on the Melech of Mitzrayim, and during the Makos, the Makos themselves are referred to at one point as a nega. Hashem says, "Od nega achat." I have one more nega, one more affliction for Paro in Mitzrayim. So we see that the word, and the, the word nega is obviously by nega tzara'as, we find this, the concept of tzara'as, but by Mitzrayim twice, we find this concept of the word nega. Now I want to share with you something which I think is rather profound, um, but I need, I, need, I need a moment's cooperation here. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to try my best. Uh, let us say, that if we were, I'm going to stop the share here for a second, close the whiteboard, and that way I can see everybody. Um, let us say that we're trying to understand the nature of having and being. And of course, I, as, a, as, a, as an axiom, I already set out from the very beginning that it is possible to, it is possible to um, have something but to have it in a being mode. It's possible to have an interaction with a physical substance, but for to experience, like going back to the poem that we started with, there is an experience that Basho, the Japanese uh, poet, is having. He's having an experience, and he's in a mode of being. He has the flower, but he has the flower in a mode of experience as opposed to uh, claiming it. And Tennyson is also having an experience, but the experience is in a having mode of things. So I want to speak about, I, I know this is going to take like a funny uh, turn. We have about 18 minutes left, maybe 15. But I want to take like a, a, a slightly funny turn that might throw some people off for a moment. But please, please, please I beg your indulgence and please trust me. I, I want to talk about substance abuse. Now, I know this is like, a, you know, I'm not speaking to 18-year-olds in yeshiva, which, Baruch Hashem, we don't really have a problem with substance abuse in, in Oraita, but typically you would think about speaking to 18-year-olds about substance abuse. You wouldn't think of speaking to, uh, you know, parents about substance abuse. I want to speak about substance abuse not the way that we normally think about it, but I want to think about substance abuse in a, in a little bit of a different way. Let's say that in any, I'm going to go back to my whiteboard for a moment. Let's say that in any experience, Back, new new whiteboard. Let's say in any experience, uh, there is the source. There is the source. I, I'm 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 gonna try this to the best of my abilities here. There is the source. There is uh, a substance. Pardon my chicken scratch. I'm typing here with uh with the computer. There's a substance, and there is a receiver. There's someone who is receiving that substance. Okay. So here, I'm going to run out of time. If I, if I, so there's the source, there's the substance, and there's the receiver. That means anytime there's going to be some transference of something from one to person to another. So there is a source, there's a substance, and there's a receiver. Let's be very simple. There is a uh, it's my wife's anniversary. It's, it's our anniversary. It's my wife's birthday. Or it's our anniversary. And I want to give her a gift. So I am the source. There is the gift that I want to give her. And she is the receiver or vice versa. If it's my birthday and 
My wife wants to give me a gift. So she is the source. The gift is the substance. And I'm the receiver. Um, you could even do this with, with a service. You know, it doesn't have to be a substance. The substance could be a service as well. Right? There is, let's say, for example, there is a... a um, there is a person who cleans my house. So there's the person, right? That's that's the individual. That's the person who does the service of cleaning my house. There is the substance. That's the service of cleaning my house. And there is the receiver. There's me who is getting a clean house. And I think that this is a this is a, a good example as well. Each of these is, is, is a great example. So substance abuse looks something like this. Substance abuse is where I take the substance, the thing that I'm looking for, and I, I turn that into the 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 thing that I worship. Let's 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 take the example of a cleaner for a second, okay? Uh, I would say that most people who who are uh, of middle middle wage income and certainly someone who's wealthy probably occasionally has somebody who cleans their house. So if the substance, which in this case would be the service, would be the cleaning of the house is what I put at the top of my totem pole, that's what I put at the top of my priority, then if the person didn't do a good job, if the source that I'm supposed to be getting this clean house from didn't do a good job, well, since the substance is the main thing that I want, then I put the substance at the top, I'm right under that, and the person is at the bottom, and if they don't do a good job, there's a certain way that I'm going to relate to their not having done a good job, and the way that I speak to them might be uh, in one way, as opposed to if I recognize that this person's been cleaning my house for 10 years and I have a relationship with that person. And this one time, the person didn't do a good job. The source, you know, which is the person cleaning my house, didn't provide on the service, which is the substance. And then there's me at the bottom. So I might have a different way of talking to them if I feel that the source did not give me the substance that I was looking for. I might still treat the source, that person who's at the top of the totem pole with a certain measure of dignity, especially if I'm in a relationship with them for the past five or 10 years. If we take that cleaning example and we turn it into a relationship between parents and children or, you know, or two spouses, so then it becomes all the more poignant. And we might say that at the top is the person and then there's the various interactions that I have with the person, then there's me at the bottom. So if we have... Uh, if we have our 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 our, uh, our objects here in order, so then the source at top and me at the bottom, and the substance being the thing that links the two of us together, that is that is going to be a recipe for oneg for pleasure. But if I put the substance at the top and I worship the substance, and I think of the person who provides me with that substance as something that I step on. And I put them at the bottom. So my order is substance, then me, the person who's receiving the substance. And the, the person that I'm getting the substance from is just an afterthought. They're just the means of me getting the substance. Well, what ends up happening is I end up stepping on those relationships. And it's a recipe actually for becoming a slave to the substance. The slave to the substance is the person who is a substance abuser. So if I, if I want to... You know, I'm I'm struggling here with the whiteboard. I'm trying my best, but I'm struggling with the whiteboard. If I want to try to map this out, I might do the following. I might say that oneg, and this is pretty remarkable, oneg might be something like this. If you recall, we said that 
there is a river that comes out of Eden, Lashkosa Sagan. There's a river, a Nahar, that comes from Eden, Lashkosa Sagan. When the when the Eden, which is the source, is on top, when the when when the, the source of the river is put in its proper place, so then I recognize, you know that river? That river is actually the thing that links Eden to the Gan, which means that on the top of the on the top of this totem pole, I have an ayin, that's Eden, followed by the Nahar, which is the Nun, and the Gimel on the bottom. That's that's the Gan. When I put it in that order, then I have Oneg. Then I have pleasure. Because I recognize that the Nahar, the substance, the rain, or the or the, the water, basically, the river that I get, is really a means of linking me to the source of that substance. And I put the relationship at the top of this uh, of, of this experience. However, if I put the Nahar at the top and then I put myself under that and my whole goal is to be able to get the Nahar and Aden, the source of the thing, is an afterthought, then I get Nega. I get the Nun from Nahar, the Gimel from Gan, and the Ayin from Aden at the bottom and I get Nega. And if you would ask me what I would say, stop the share here for a second. What I would say, if you would ask me, what is the Torah trying to tell me when it says that the greatest thing I could have in my life is Oneg, and the worst thing I could have is Nega, is basically telling me that the worst thing that I could have in my life is being in a having mode, a pure having mode, where all I do is attempt to elicit substance from the thing at the top of my totem pole, and I become a slave, slaving after that substance, as opposed to recognizing the substance as a means of bringing together these two these two poles of me at the bottom and some thing that I'm trying to have a relationship with at the top. I want to try to bring this down just with five more minutes that we have left in the class to try to bring this down with a muscle, which I think will going back to the relationship between a husband and a wife that I think hopefully will bring the two ideas together. And then I want to wrap up this idea of Eric Fromm and the, and the rain and the rivers. Here's the muscle going back to a, um, to an anniversary. Okay, this is an amazing exercise. Three scenarios. Three scenarios. Scenario number one. It is my anniversary. And I spent a good two hours uh, sneaking around my, my wife's WhatsApp chat to see what she wants for a gift. And I see, oh, a few days ago, she was talking to my sister-in-law and she said, oh, there's this amazing new coat from Anthropology that I want to buy. That's my wife's uh, store of choice. She likes Anthropology. So there's this amazing new coat from Anthropology that I want to buy. So I go to Anthropology and I pick up the coat and I get it wrapped. And okay, it's the day of our anniversary and I come home from work and I have this gift bag and I walk into the house. Three scenarios. Here we go. Scenario number one. I walk into the house and I present my wife with the anthropology coat and she unwraps it and says, wow, this is exactly what I wanted. Puts it on and walks out of the house to go out with her friends with the coat. Scenario number one. Scenario number two. I walk into the house with the coat. She takes the coat out of the bag. She looks at it. And she 
says, wow, this is a really nice coat. I, I was thinking about buying this. She puts it on the side and says, but I don't really care about the coat. All I care about is you. I'm so happy we've been married for, you know, close to close to 15 years, for over a decade. Scenario number three. Scenario number three. I walk in with the coat. She takes out the coat. She looks at the coat. She says, wow, this is exactly what I wanted. How did you know? I love this gift. And she puts it on and she looks in the mirror. She says, don't do I look good in it? How do you, does it fit? Does it look good? I love you so much. I'm so happy we've been married for, for over a decade. Those are the three scenarios. Scenario number one is a person who takes the river, who takes the nahar, who takes the substance and puts the person who brought the substance, Aden, takes the source and throws it out. I take the jacket, I take the river, and I put it on, and I run out of the house to go spend time with somebody else. I forget that the river comes from somewhere. It comes from Aden. Somebody spent time picking out the gift called reality that Hashem created for us. And I've forgotten that there's a source of that reality. Scenario number two is maybe something like, you know, is maybe something like a Buddhist monk or in certain instantiations of it, a, a Christian uh, priest or a nun where I say, I don't want the world. I don't care about the jacket. All I care about is God. All I care about is Aden. But the truth is, that's also not ideal because God or the source has spent time as it were, creating a medium called the river, which is all the things in reality that he wants us to be able to enjoy in order to bring the two of us together. He doesn't want us to remain celibate. He doesn't want us to not experience the joy of eating food. He doesn't want us to not enjoy the coat. He doesn't want us to say, oh, I was kind of thinking about getting that coat, but I don't really care about the coat. I care about you. Well, what do you mean? I spent two hours you know, snooping around your WhatsApp to find out which coat you wanted. And then I bought it and then I brought it to you, you know? And so you don't appreciate the the the, the fact that I'm, there's an output here in the relationship. And the third, which is the ideal, coming back to Eric Fromm's to have or to be, is to both have the stuff, to take the substance and to recognize that the substance comes from somewhere, to not fall prey to the, illusion of reality being separated from the source of, of reality and to recognize that all of the rivers, all of the various things that we have at our disposal, if we so choose, could become rain because it's the same thing. As Len pointed out before, the, the Euphrates and the Nile are both rivers. One of them is from rain and one of them is from an underground spring. The difference between a river that comes from rain, the difference between a house and a car and a, and, a, and a set of clothing and, and, and nice books and nice silverware and, 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 and children and, 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 and relationships with people that are actually become all about possessions. I have a wife. I have a husband. I have children. I have a Shabbos table that has on it all these different things versus I am married. I am a parent. I am a Sabbath observant person. And all these things which are more experiential the difference between the two of those is that the person who understands that the relationship is at the center of reality recognizes that it's not a it's not a stira, it's not a contradiction in terms to be a person who has things, 
but it's that the person who has things in a being mode, a person who recognizes somebody bought me that coat and I don't want to throw away the coat because I appreciate that the time was spent creating this coat. And I also don't want to throw away the person who bought me the coat. That is a person who lives a life of oneg, of true pleasure, of true delight. If either I, through self-affliction, by you know being a person who's constantly fasting and doesn't allow myself to enjoy the pleasures of this world, I say I'm not interested in the nahar, I'm not interested in the stuff, then I live a life of affliction. Or, which is more likely to happen, especially in a Western society that uh, that I grew up in and we all we all we all live in, you know, a world which is uh which is overwhelmed with a Western way of looking at things for its for its good also, is that we could sometimes think that simple mere ownership of of substance is enough to give me oneg, but it's not true. If the nahar, if the substance is at the top of the totem pole, and then I, the gan, the one who's receiving, the river the, the river is being given to the garden, is that is the second in line. And Aden, which is the source, is something that I simply step on in order to be able to get what I need, then that is a life which is a recipe for nega. And even though the river may be more plentiful and may be more available and ripe for the taking, everybody knows what the end of the story of the Garden of Eden is. That the river that goes through Eden actually ends up leaving Eden and splitting up into four different heads and going outside of the garden and carrying humanity outside of paradise. That if I'm willing to be in that vulnerable state where I take the rain as it comes to me and I take the relationship as it comes to me, then I remain in paradise. But if I do not, if I too often dip my toes into the river in attempt to kick the rain in my, or this river in my direction so that I can water the garden to, my own, to the beat of my own drum without being in a relationship with anybody else, then it might happen occasionally that I accidentally slip into the river and then the river carries me downstream and outside of paradise. And so I think to uh, to wrap up here that the I believe the title of the shear was the title of the class was the um, to have or to be the spiritual uh, underpinnings of of the psychology of Eric uh, of Eric Fromm or something like that. I would say that the spiritual lesson of to have or to be is that when a person properly balances having and being, or to say it differently, I would say. If a person wants to be in a purely having mode, it's not possible that they can come to a place of true oneg, of true delight, of true pleasure. But if a person wants to be in a being mode, it does not exclude the having mode. A person who is in a being mode can have things, can have relationships. But if at the center of that, the having mode, the excuse me, the being mode also contains within it these objects that I have but I recognize that it's only there to facilitate the relationship. So then I can, I can come to a place of true delight, of true, of true pleasure. I'll, I'll, uh, we have, it's, it's technically been an hour, but I'll, I'll, I'll open for just for five minutes here. If anybody has any comments or this reminds them of anything else or has any questions or clarifications, it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty heady idea, a pretty heavy idea, but I just wanted to, uh, to thank you for the opportunity. If anybody has any comments or questions, I'll open up for, for, you know, we'll, we'll remain for five more minutes and we'll see. If not, I'm happy to wish everybody a wonderful evening and, uh, and we can call it a day. But I see that Len is already unmuted. So I'm I'm thankful that so, he's going to chip in again. Rabbi, I just have a comment. Thank you for making me sound a lot smarter than I really am. The comment about the Euphrates and the Nile. <laughs> I appreciate it. That's my job. You. That's my job. <laughs>
That's my job. Thank you for saying thank you. Yeah, 